as you see to the young children who will be in children's worship, can meet their teachers in the back. They'll rejoin us at the end. Older children, if they like, there are red folders in the lobby that have sermon outlines, fill-in-the-blank format to help track with the sermon. Grown-up kids, if they want a copy, could maybe go out there and grab one too, if it would be helpful. The word this morning comes from Matthew chapter 20. I have to say it's probably, definitely my favorite parable in Matthew's gospel, maybe in all of scripture. So I've been looking forward as we've been trekking through Matthew these past years, been looking forward to this. Chapter 20, hear now the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idly all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. He replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to say two words. I'm curious how they make you feel. Group project. Yeah. Yeah, whether it's something at work, or something at school, or doing a project, cleanup project at home together. You're called to work with others and do a job together. And it can be very rewarding. It can also be very frustrating. Especially when you do the obvious thing and you divide up the tasks. When I was in school and my grade depended on it, I hated group projects because I loved and idolized my grades. I would even redo other people's work on the project before turning it in to make sure it met my standards. And it, and it always made me mad because, yes, we were getting a good grade. Everybody in the group would get the same grade. I mean, it's obvious that some of us worked harder and did a much better job. Or mom calls the kids and says, clean the living room and we'll go out for ice cream. And some of you did a lot more work than the others, but everybody gets the ice cream. It's not fair, right? The reward is the same. And that mindset of fairness and of being rewarded accurately for our work can get in the way of how we understand the ways of God. Sure, we, we know and we understand, or at least I hope we do, that we are saved 
by grace alone. And this is a gift of God, not of works, so there's nothing to boast about. Yes, you're saved by grace, but I'm not talking about just salvation here. Every step of the Christian life, every step you take from salvation through sanctification and living in obedience on to glory and even heavenly rewards is a gift of grace, not a prize for doing the right thing or the best thing. And many of us will find that offensive. God's grace doesn't follow our standards of working and earning. And if we try to treat God like some kind of machine that gives predictable outcomes for consistent input, then we're going to be surprised when we see that God doesn't follow our rules. If we're to avoid being not only confused, but upset and even offended by the way God treats us, then we need to see in this parable some warnings. Warnings about how to understand the way that God distributes His blessings. And the first warning we see is don't think that you can force God's hand. Don't think that you can force God's hand. Now to understand the story that sets this up, we need to take off our 21st century American lenses for a minute because the story as Jesus tells it would make total sense to his original audience in their culture, but not so much in our experience with our views of wages and contracts. The way this story would set up was, was very familiar to Jesus' day, and, and I actually got to experience when I lived overseas for a time, I, I would walk around and see on the streets, and I, I, at first, you know, my first years there, I wondered what this was. I would see people just sitting on the street or standing on the corner, and they'd have a little handwritten sign on the ground in front of them, and maybe a little bag. With my American perception, I thought, oh, they're, they're begging. The sign is probably begging for money. I don't know. That bag is all they have. But as I spent years in the culture and started to be able to read the sign and ask my friends what was going on, I found out these were, these were manual laborers. These are workers who had skills, and the sign listed what they could do. You know, I, I can fix small appliances, I can lay down flooring, and I can paint. And if you have some jobs that need to be done in your house or apartment or in your office, you go out and you find somebody. And, and I got to experience this several times. Uh, at one point, my landlord needed to install a new air conditioner outside the window of our 28-story building. And so he, he took me with him to go out because he's a really friendly guy. And we're walking around, and he just goes out, and he finds somebody who says, you know, their little sign says they can drill holes through cement. He's got a bag of tools and everything. He's like, all right, we need somebody who can drill a hole through the wall. Okay, we need somebody who can cover up the drywall. And we need somebody who can hang outside a window and hang an air conditioner. And there are plenty of those people, believe it or not. Um, anyway, we, you, you meet the people. You see what they can do. You tell them the job. You, you argue the price. You take them back. They do the job. You pay them. And then they go on their way. That's just kind of how, how jobs work there, how uh, day laborers work. And some of you have seen that here in the States as well. You've seen, whether it's farm labor or construction labor, you've seen you know, people waiting around for a job. They get picked up. They do a day's work. They get paid, and then they're dropped off. No guarantee of another day or anything like that. So that, that's what's going on here. We see that set up in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. It's, it's harvest time. I need people to gather in. I'm not employing people all year to do this. I wait until the day comes. I go out into the public square, I find people and say, hey, come back to my place, let's work out a price, you'll do the job. 
And then throughout the day, at various hours, he calls more people in to add more laborers to the field for a day. You know, the day began at 6 a.m. Third hour was about 9 a.m. Sixth hour, noon. Ninth hour was about 3 p.m. The 11th hour, you're looking at 5 p.m. And then 6 p.m. is quitting time. So he's going all through the day and bringing people in to help bring in the harvest. Now, if we're looking at this parable and getting caught up trying to say, well, what, what is the field? Is the field the lost people that we're, we're going out and bringing to salvation? What, what are the different hours? Are the different ages of the church and history? No. None of that is the point. There is one way in this parable, one way that Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man with a field, and that is summed up in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I not allowed to choose, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now to understand what this means for us, we have to remember the context, what we've been seeing so far in Matthew. Just before this, we saw the story in the past two weeks of a rich young man who came to Jesus saying, what can I do, what good things can I do to get eternal life, to earn eternal life as a reward from God? What can I do? And when Jesus unveiled that this man's heart, his true worship, was his wealth, this man realized he could not do what God required, and he went away. He wasn't willing to give up his wealth to follow Jesus. And so he went away sad and dejected. And after that, the disciples pointed out, hey, Jesus, we've given up everything. Good for us! What did we get? If you told him that, that leaving his wealth, he'd get eternal life, surely we're going to get something because we, we've given up everything. We've left our families. We've left our jobs. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they had boats. They left boats behind. Surely we're going to get something out of this. Shouldn't we then expect a greater reward for greater sacrifice and greater obedience? Jesus assured them that yes, God would indeed reward his faithful children but it would not always go as expected. And then in chapter 19, at the very end of that story, verse 30 says, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. You see these chapter divisions, these verse divisions, those were, those were later. This is all one thought. Jesus says the last will be first. The first will be last, because the kingdom of heaven is like a man with a field who wants to go out and hire workers. The wages in this parable are not meant to be a symbol of salvation. Everybody gets eternal life. We're all equal. We all get the same thing. But rather of reward and blessing that God chooses to give to whom and how He chooses. And the disciples may think that those who give more and sacrifice more will get more. And Jesus says it is not always so. On what basis does God give His blessings in this life? and rewards in the life to come. Well, like the disciples in the previous story, we might expect that we can perform certain actions that God will be pleased with, make certain sacrifices, accomplish great things in God's name, and then we expect to bring those achievements to God and say, look! Look what I've done! Now you owe me. You owe me something. Certainly more than them. They didn't do this. They couldn't be bothered. But I did it. And at first glance, the parable seems to support that view. I mean, the, the workers are doing a job, and they're getting paid wages according to the job that they do. But that's, again, not the point of the parable. The point of this story is that the different workers are actually paid differently. 
Sure, they all get a denarius. That's a day's wage. That's, that's the common, like, here's what you get when you work a day. They all get that. But those who worked a 12-hour day got the same thing as those who worked a one-hour day. So if you calculate it by hourly pay, somebody is really getting a good deal here. You see, as in verses 9 and 10, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. Their thought was if the master was paying a denarius, a day's wage, for one hour of work, then obviously he owed them a, about 12 times that, because they've done 12 hours of work. And they're told, no, you don't get to decide how this man uses his money. You can't force his hand. And that is what we say in, in theological terms. That's the sovereignty of God. That God doesn't have to give account to anyone for how he does what he chooses to do. God makes his own choices for his own reasons, and he's not bound by our expectations. In Romans 11, we see God praised with these words, of the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. We can't figure out His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to God that He might be repaid? You don't, God doesn't owe anybody anything. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. We, in our hearts, would like to demand an accounting of God. Why does He do this? Why is He doing that? Why, didn't something, why did something bad happen to this good person? And why isn't this bad person being punished? Why is this ministry which is filled with, with error and sin and impropriety, why is it flourishing and becoming famous? Whereas this, this good church or this good ministry that, that is faithfully preaching the gospel, why is it laboring in obscurity and struggling to make ends meet? The answer is what the Master says in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? One person is more gifted spiritually than another. And in the church, we look around and we say, oh, this person can do that. I can't do that. Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. As the Holy Spirit wills, we have different gifts. And some are able to, to teach and to instruct and, and to give good lessons, and others are not. Some are able to pray faithfully and fervently at great lengths, and others are not. Some are, are the, the right person to talk to when you are upset, and they give comfort and counsel. And others are more prickly pears that, that maybe don't have that gifting. Each one is gifted according to the way God wills. Why is this person capable of this and I'm not? Because that's how the Spirit willed it. No one can force God's hand and say, hey, I studied hard, I worked hard, you owe me this position in your church where I can serve in this way that I want to serve. No, if God has not chosen that for you, no one can force His hand. One has wealth, another does not. One has a happy marriage, and so on. And we can expect that in God's new world, some will be rewarded in a way that may surprise us. Some people will be surprised to see them there at all. Others will be rewarded and will say, well, what did they ever do? Did they do this, that? No, no. 
God does not follow our accounting of how He should act. And we cannot force Him to do something by our obedience or by our protest or our work. What what Paul says in Romans 9 of salvation is true of all things. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, hard work, but on God who has mercy. You can't force God's hand. So is God unjust? Is that what this parable is telling us? Well, no. God is never unjust. He's never less than just. But He is not fair. That's the second lesson of this parable. The first one, you can't force God's hand. The second lesson is, don't expect grace to be fair. After hiring the first workers at the beginning of the story, in verse 2 it says that he agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day and sent them into his vineyard. And then later on in the next verses as he's hiring others, about the third hour he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. He said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. He did the same thing at the sixth and the ninth hour. Notice that he, he doesn't negotiate the price with the people at the, the, the later hours. Why? Well, because no one's hired them yet. And they're standing there, and people have already hired their workers for the day. And they know their choice is, I stay here all day and do nothing and get nothing, or I go work for this guy and get whatever he thinks is fair. But look what he promises them in verse 4. Whatever is right, I will give you. He promises to be fair, to be just to them. And later on, when the first workers, the ones who stayed all day, when they complained that they were being paid the same as everyone else, even though they did more work, the man replied in verse 13, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I am doing you no wrong. I kept the contract. I kept the deal. I cheated no one. Whatever is right, I will pay you. Whatever you may think of this eccentric landowner, whatever judgments you have about his way of doing things, you cannot accuse him of being unjust. He is not unjust. He doesn't cheat anyone out of their wages. He doesn't fail to uphold his agreements. Those who were paid more than they should have been paid, that didn't happen at the expense of those who worked the long day. Everybody got a just, fair wage. He wronged no one. But why then does it feel so wrong? I mean, did you feel that as you read it? It feels wrong because grace feels wrong. Grace by its nature is unfair. Now, we don't notice how wrong grace feels when we experience it. When it's grace being shown us, when we get pulled over and the officer lets us off with a warning, That doesn't feel wrong. But when the idiot who cut me off gets pulled over and let off with a warning, then grace feels wrong. It feels unfair. Grace by its nature is unfair. Verse 12, they protest, these last worked only one hour. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. I'm going to say it. He's right. He's right. It is unfair. It's unfair and yet no one's been cheated. No one's lost anything. Some were given more than others, more than they had earned or deserved. Fairness is everyone getting the same. Grace is not fair. But I hope that you understand that we should rejoice over that statement. 
We are saved by the unfairness of God. We deserve wrath. We deserve death. We deserve condemnation. Who of you figured your way out of that on your own? Who of you overcame your sin and earned God's favor? I'm glad that none of you are jumping to raise your hands at that point. As Paul asked the church in 1 Corinthians 4, what did you have that you did not receive? Think of the implications of that. Not just salvation, brothers and sisters. Everything you have, your breath, your home, your strength, your family, your job, your abilities, your capacity to even hear and understand the words I'm saying right now is a gift that you have been given by God. Paul goes on to say, what did you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The grace of God to you was unfair. While we were still sinners, while we were still His enemies, Scripture says, God sent His Son to die in our place. Was that fair? No, it was not fair. Not in the least. When I say that God is not fair, you should say, Hallelujah! God is not fair! We are blessed with more than we deserve. Jesus concludes the parable by repeating the words that started it. In verse 16, So the last will be first, and the first last. It's not fair. If I had a big cake to share with everyone who was here and I said, line up! I'm serving cake! And I start cutting the pieces and I, you know, because I'm horrible at this, I'm cutting them all different sizes. So there's bigger pieces and smaller pieces and you who have, who have gotten to the front of the line the quickest because you know, there's no saints when it comes to cake. You've you know, you rushed forward and you know, you are look, you're eyeing that big piece. I know what one I'm going to get. And I take the cake and I walk to the back of the line. And I let the last choose first. Those in the front would be less than satisfied with that. Because you were faster. You were stronger with the elbows. You got there first. And the world looks at people and judges them based on certain things it values, things that make them first. The wealthy, the strong, the thin, the beautiful, the famous. Such people are first in the world's eyes. And to our shame, even in the church, we can imitate the way of the world. And we find other things, more spiritual things, that set someone apart and make them first in our eyes. The eloquent, the knowledgeable, the influential, the successful, the attractive, the ones with obedient children, the ones who sing well, the ones who sacrifice so much to serve overseas ones who have sacrificed so much to serve in the nursery. Whatever it is, we assume, because we are thinking like the world at this point, we assume that God is like us and that He intends to bless and reward people according to those same standards, according to what makes us first. And if that's how it goes, then it is not grace. It's achievement. 
Instead, he says, the last, the ones who have done the least to deserve a reward or blessing, the ones who are not winners by our standards, they will be forced, they will receive an honor they haven't earned and don't deserve. And the first, the ones who seem to have it all together, they will be last. They will not receive the rewards that we expect. God is not fair. Don't expect grace to be fair. And now do I say that to discourage you from faithful obedience and faithful labor in God's kingdom? Uh, Don't make a sacrifice. You know? That's what happens with certain forms of economics where you know you're getting the reward no matter how hard you work. And even if you if you work harder than everyone else, you know, this guy over here on the couch is, you know, he's still getting the same thing you're getting, so why bother? Is that why I'm sharing this? Should that be how our hearts apply this? The last will be first, the first will be last, so don't bother? No, not at all. Again, that that's not the point. The point is our third warning. Don't let comparison steal your joy. Don't let comparison steal your joy. This parable is not telling us that there's no reward for faithfulness. It isn't telling us that everyone's treated the same no matter what. It's teaching us that God's blessings and rewards are given based on His own purposes and they are by grace, not by merit. And so for us to compare and judge and envy, it only serves to steal our joy. The group that worked all day, were they unhappy with what they got? Did they say that a denarius was not enough? No, that that wasn't the problem. They agreed already that a denarius was fine. That was a day's wage. And if they had been paid first, what do you think would have happened? They would have taken their wage, gone home happy and satisfied in a job well done with sufficient pay. They weren't unhappy with their reward. They were unhappy looking at someone else. Verses 11-12, On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. You've made them equal to us who borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. They grumbled. They were grumbling over the grace shown to others. You remember a few weeks, even months ago now at this point, Uh, This series of teaching in Matthew began at the beginning of chapter 18 with the disciples arguing among themselves who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then, as we're going to see next week, in next week's passage, the mother of two of the disciples is going to come forward to Jesus and, and say, hey, can you make my sons on your left and right, like the, the, the number one and number two guy, the most important two in your you know, band of merry men in your kingdom, can you make them the most important? We can get so busy comparing ourselves to others and trying to be better than others and exalting ourselves over others or feeling bad about those that are above us in some way that we lose sight of the grace that God has given us. There is a, a little story tucked in at the end of, of John's Gospel. And I have to say, I, I'm amazed again and again. The Gospel of John has so much subtle humor in it. And this is one of them. It's one of my favorite stories. It's at the very end. You're probably familiar with the story of you know, Peter. Uh, at G- after Jesus' arrest, Peter denied Jesus three times. I don't know the man. Three times. And after his resurrection, Jesus appears again to his disciples. And they're by the Sea of Galilee. And they've just done some fishing. And they've just had some breakfast. And then Jesus pulls Peter aside. And from the way the story goes, it seems they, they go on a little walk. 
just privately, the two of them. And three times, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yeah. Feed my sheep. He does it three times. Three, three moments for three denials. And he restores Peter and, and is calling Peter into ministry. Feed my sheep. Take care of the flock. And he says, Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself. You, you went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, you're going to be forced to go somewhere else. You're going to, basically, he's telling Jesus, you're going to be forced. He's telling Peter, you're going to be forced to die for me. And that intense, personal, beautiful moment. You know what Peter does? What about John? You know, John 21, John apparently is following them from a distance. And John 21, verse 20, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? In this intimate moment of forgiveness and restoration and commissioning into ministry, Peter says, yeah, but what about that guy? What are you going to do about him? I'm going to die. Is he going to die? Look how Jesus answers in verse 22. Jesus says to him, if it's my will that he remain alive until I come back, what is that to you? Follow me. You follow me. What is that to you? Christian, what is that to you if God chooses to do something else in the life of another person, what you wish he would do in your life? What is it to you if God gives someone else a greater or lesser blessing than the one you've received? What is it to you if they don't have to struggle with the things you struggle with? What is it to you if they get a blessing that you don't get? What is it to you? Why, why grumble? Why does your heart feel cheated? It is comparison that's stealing your joy. Why look at, at their pictures on social media and, and feel envy for the life that they are showing that you wish was yours because God hasn't blessed you in the same way He's blessed them? What is that to you? Has God been unjust? Has He not blessed you far beyond what you deserve? Look at how the first worker said this in verse 12. These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Do you see the, the lie that they're believing that's at the heart of their complaint? He said, you have made them equal to us. They are finding their worth, their value, in what they have received. If they got more, they were better. And I'm not talking about money here. I'm talking about all the things that we in our hearts seek and desire from God. If someone has children that are a joy and I don't, then we're not equal. If someone has a secure retirement and I don't, then we're not equal. Or, like in the parable... I obeyed God my whole life. I was raised in the church. I've been reading the Bible since I was young. I've been giving to missions since I was a child, giving out of my allowance. I've not been given in my whole life to, to worldly pleasures the way others did. I did so much. And here's this Johnny-come-lately who's just come to faith late in life who has squandered the years and gifts that God has given him. And God blesses him just as he's blessed me. They have a happy home. They have a family. They have a stable career. They're, they're even leading and teaching others in the church. God has made them equal to me who endured years of faithful service. Is there no reward for the righteous? 
As we looked at the passage last week, Randy showed us how this echoes the story of the prodigal son. Not so much the son who ran away. We're familiar with that. The prodigal son, the one who ran away and squandered everything. But the, the meat of the story is when that son gets home, having wasted everything. He comes home, and there's a celebration. And his brother, his older brother out in the field, who never left, who's at work, hard at work, taking care of things like he always does, he hears the celebration. He says, what's going on? And the servants say, your brother came home, and we're having a party for your brother. And his heart goes bitter and hard. That fool! We're celebrating that fool? When he came home, he should have been whooped. He should have been rebuked. He should have been turned away. There should have been no welcome for him. Why are we welcoming him home? And the father comes out to speak to the, to the older brother. and says, why, why won't you come in? And the older brother says in Luke 15, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, with a fattened calf for him. What is stealing his joy? As we saw last week, the father says, look, all I have is yours. You're here with me. It's, it's looking at another and comparing and feeling the joy seep out of your heart. When we have received all the fullness of God's grace and love, we turn bitter when we decide that we would rather see what He has given someone else. Look at how the landowner instructs them in the end, in verse 14. He says to those who were complaining, he says, take what belongs to you and go. Now that, that could be harsh. That, that could be dismissive, couldn't it? Like, take what belongs to you and go. If that's your attitude, if you're complaining, get out of here. You know, if we apply that to ourselves, it feels like, Hey, you're saved, right? You've been promised eternal life, right? So what if God's blessing other people in a different way? So what if you don't feel like His favorite? Quit your whining. Take what belongs to you and go. I don't think that's how we should read that. Think of it this way. Child of God, what belongs to you? What belongs to you? Take what belongs to you and go. You are no beggar in God's kingdom. No child of God walks away with just a denarius, a glittery stone. We have a rich inheritance. The poet in the Song of Solomon puts it this way, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. What belongs to me? That's not just poetry. The words of 1 Corinthians 3, for all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We need not compare and grumble and be bitter and feel neglected when God seems to bless one more than another. When His grace unfairly grants what someone doesn't deserve, 
and leaves us feeling like we've labored in vain. You have been given everything. You have been given all things. You have God. You are one with Him and in Him you have every spiritual blessing and the promise of greater reward to come. We mentioned earlier this is Pentecost, the day we especially remember the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And Paul writes of that in Ephesians 1, saying that in Christ we've obtained an inheritance, a rich blessing. And in Christ also, when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You have an inheritance of unspeakable riches. And until you have it fully in your hands, you have a deposit, a guarantee, which is God's Holy Spirit. What greater guarantee could He have given than Himself? God the Spirit with you, leading you, guiding you, reminding you, promising you, assuring you, helping you to live out the Gospel, which is the good news of your rich reward. A reward you didn't earn or deserve. A reward purchased by another for you. So take what belongs to you. Take the riches that belong to you and go, not with complaining, not with shame. Go with joy. Go with rejoicing because there is no room for grumbling. As we already sang, who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace which like the Lord the giver never fails from age to age. Solid joys and lasting pleasures for Zion's children. So don't turn and look at other people. Don't turn and look at what they've received. Don't turn and compare, well, why is their life this way? No. Turn and look upon Jesus. Recall what He has done. The One whose work earned the reward that you didn't deserve. And rejoice today. Rejoice in the offensively unfair, sovereign grace of God to you. Let us pray that by the Holy Spirit that is in us, we will be able to rejoice in that way today. We thank You, Heavenly Father, that by the Spirit within us we know and have certainty that we will receive all that You have promised, which is more than we can ask or imagine. We thank You that there is no, no reason for us to grumble, to complain, to feel cheated, to feel slighted. You have been unfair to us, yes. But in the best way possible. And in the light of that unfairness, we rejoice. Fill our hearts with joy in Your presence as we fix our eyes not on what we covet, not on what we think we lack, but as we turn our eyes on the graciousness of God to us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.